This person is a woman. She died in 2014, age 81. Uh, Mother Teresa. Not Mother Teresa. In her 20s, she worked in the publicity department at Lord & Taylor and was a fashion coordinator for the Bond clothing stores. I have no idea. Ooh, um, Elizabeth Taylor. Not Elizabeth Taylor. In the early 60s, she joined the Chicago-based Second City troupe, whose improvisational approach, she said, reinforced her confidence. Ah, Tina Fey. Tina Fey. Not Tina Fey. You're the second person ah! to guess that. Okay. <laughs> she was described as a brassy Jewish-American princess from Flatbush, Brooklyn. Gilda Radner? Not Gilda Radner. She was one of America's first successful female stand-up comics in an aggressive tradition that had been almost exclusively the province of men. Okay, now I'm realizing you said she died at 81. Yeah. <laughs> well, of course it's not Tina Fey. Well, and what's her name? Uh, Carol Burnett. She's not dead, right? It's not Carol Burnett, but that's a very good ah! guess. Okay. Okay. She was vivacious, even as a nipped and tucked octogenarian. Oh, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> oh, man. This is Tip of my tongue. Crap. Um. <laughs> oh, Joan Rivers? Today's dead celebrity is Joan Rivers. <laughs> <laughs> Joan friggin' Rivers. I think... One of the points of these friggin' quizzes is to work up tension, and tension was work. Uh, so thank you very much, Mike Osborne. Uh, okay, let's do the show. House lights off. Stage lights on. Curtain open. Drumroll. Is everybody happy? Good. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the best act in her price range. Miss Joe. Welcome to Famous and Gravy. I'm Michael Osborne. And my name is Amit Kapoor. And on this show, we go through a series of categories about multiple aspects of a famous person's life. We want to figure out the things in life that we would actually desire and ultimately answer the big question, would I want that life? Today, Joan Rivers died 2014, age 81. Category one, the first line of the obituary. Joan Rivers, the raspy loudmouth who pounced on America's obsession with flab, facelifts, body hair, and other blemishes of neurotic life, including her own, in five decades of caustic comedy that propelled her from nightclubs to television to international stardom, died on Thursday in Manhattan. Bravo. That was my take. Yeah, they got a lot in there. They got a lot in there. I really like the word caustic. Yeah, well, I, read me just the first, like, five words. Raspy loudmouth who pounced on America's obsession with flab facelifts, body hair, and other blemishes. Yeah. Of, of neurotic life. That prepositional phrase was a little funny. Yeah, raspy loudmouth who pounced. Yeah. That much I didn't like. <laughs> really? I mean, just that alone. Raspy loudmouth who pounced. Just picture this, like, devil rabbit. <laughs> yeah, it does, does seem like a wild, annoying animal. Yeah, but I think this is an example of why we choose the New York Times 
first line of the obituary is our first category. Frequently, they sum up what seems very hard to sum up in a sentence that is unrecognizable as a sentence because it's so damn long. I have in the past critiqued some of the New York Times obituaries as being too long. I think I want to back off of that. Yeah, Yeah. that's the magicianship of it, I think. Yeah. I like that the word neurotic is in there. I think think it's appropriate. I think five decades is great. Caustic, I mentioned a second ago. This is a really good one. Do you want to give your score? Yeah, I'll go. Go ahead. Nine. That's what I was going with. The the critique I had was this prepositional phrase and other blemishes of neurotic life. I don't know what that means. Other blemish? What was the, what did it, what preceded that? So here's how it goes. Raspy loudmouth who pounced on America's obsession with flab, facelifts, body hair, and other blemishes of neurotic life. I have to, I just have to think about that. What the fuck does that mean? Blemishes of neurotic life. Yeah, I don't think neurotic was necessarily adjective but, there. Right. They had to get that word in there. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the ding for me. Otherwise, I'm happy to give this a nine. Yeah, because they wanted, well, they well, let's go back to that in a second, because they wanted to say blemishes, right? Because that was, you know, so much about the... Superficial? Or? Yeah. The, the Well, I mean, just her red carpet commenting, you know, it was all about yeah. these joking things about people's appearance. But yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that. I didn't pick up on that immediately. Should we go on to category two? Yep. All right. Five things I love about you. This is where Amit and I work together to come up with five reasons why we're talking about this person. I got a lot here, but I would suspect there's going to be some overlap. Do you want to start us or you want me to start us? Um, If you got a lot, then you start us. All right. Complete devotion to stand-up comedy and remaining relevant for five decades. She took the stage for over 50 years and worked to keep her act funny and relevant and even got more and more relevant towards the end of her life in some ways. That's incredible. I cannot think of another comic who's had that kind of longevity. George Carlin maybe kind of approaches. Yeah. Like there is a true devotion to the art of stand-up comedy here yes. that uh, that I absolutely love and that I absolutely admire. And and to do it over a course of five decades. I think that's the thing, because you could say this about anybody who, you know, has the balls to get up on stage and, and render themselves vulnerable and bomb and go through, like, the pain that that must be. But to do it over and over and over again for 50-plus years, I love that. Yeah. For a woman, it's absolutely pioneering. Yeah. But I think we've, yeah, you said Carlin did it, arguably Carson and Leno did it. Yeah. Or Leno is doing it. I mean, by the time Seinfeld hangs it up, yeah, he probably would have done it too. And then there's all these young guys, you know, that are in their 30s and 40s that are your your superstars now, your Chappelle's and John Mulaney's and so forth. They hang on another two or three decades. Yeah, I mean, I had a whole lot of other things packed into devotion to stand-up comedy. I mean, commitment to free speech, she said over and over again, and I think Anthony Jeselnik tweeted this, she would never apologize for a joke. So there was like deep, unapologetic, brash comedy, however you feel about it. And there's criticisms to be had, but there's a unique commitment, not just to the art form, but to like a particular in-your-face fearlessness about it, that it's not just the longevity, it's the longevity combined with persistent fearlessness. Yeah, I think your entire one thing can just be summed up by the word commitment. Yeah. The performance and commitment to the style. So that's one. You'll give me that one? 
Yeah, I, I think my first one is a derivative of yours. I just wrote the first woman to host a late night talk show. Yeah. But I don't think that can stand on its own after you've said that. So I like the that pioneering aspect of it, mm. but I think we can lump that in with yours. So, okay, I want to dig a second. Do you want to be a pioneer in life? Because the question is not, do we admire her for being a pioneer? The question is, do you want to be a pioneer in some form or fashion in what you choose to do in your life? Absolutely. So yeah. that's the quality that you're calling out. Yeah. I mean, I think as a woman in the, the 50s and 60s, there was a lot of change to be had yeah. still. But I can often look at the world and be like, it's all been done. And I, I have a feeling that that mentality goes on forever. Like before the Industrial Revolution, people were like, well, it's all been done. Yeah. What are we possibly going to do next? <laughs> so, How about a flight of the fucking moon? Yeah. yeah right. So to, yeah, to be a pioneer in anything, to, to go that far and become a late night host, that's pretty incredible. It is incredible. So are we including that as number two or not? It's yeah, not we like can you... put that as number two. Okay. First place and host. Pioneering. Yeah. Pioneering. pioneering. Okay. Is it my turn now? Yeah. This is a little meta to our show, but she loved obituaries and she chose celebrities as targets. It's very meta. It's very famous and gravy. So in some way, she's inspired you? Yeah, more than I would have thought. She had a real obsession with fame and poking at the sort of absurdity of it. And then I read, you know, this biography I read of hers, she talked about loving obituaries. She just thought they were incredible. It's kind of funny. I mean, she's like a little bit of the opposite of our very first episode on Robin Leach. How so? Because his take on celebrity was, look at this, let's admire this. Was fawning. Yeah. Yeah. And hers is like, let's look at this, let's poke at it. Yeah. This is, what a big joke this is. Yeah. All right, what do you got? Yeah, I'll go mother-daughter relationship. Oh. That she did a lot with her daughter. She worked alongside her daughter. They did projects together, shows together. And I just feel like you don't see that very much. And from the clips I saw, like I, I sensed a special partnership. I can't think of too many others that have that sort of mother-daughter professional performance bond. Yeah. Very obviously very close for reasons I think we'll get into as we go along. They bonded up. But, uh, no, that's sweet. I like that. It wasn't meant just to be sweet, though. I just think it's unique, and I think it's life-validating, too. I like the display of it. Like Ken Griffey Jr. and Ken Griffey Sr. playing on the same team at a certain point. You just like seeing that father-son pairing out there? Yeah. Yeah. On the same team at the same time. That's what I like to see. Same team, same time. Is that because it speaks to, like, DNA qualities? Or King Griffey Sr. can say to King Griffey Jr., I'm I'm ready to pass the mantle to you? Just about In some way, in some way. It's more of like a follow-in-the-footsteps type of imagery that I'm getting. All right. Should I go to my number five? Please. Okay. Late in life, she became friends with a woman named Marjorie Stern when she was like in her 60s, and they became like best buds. This is after Joan's husband has died. The way that their friendship is described is adorable. It's just like the two of them were hilarious. The story that uh, I read that stuck out to me was in in 2008, 2009, around the time of the Bernie Madoff scandal— Joan Rivers is in a restaurant, and she goes to the waiter and says, when Ruth Madoff comes in, don't mention her husband. She's so embarrassed. And then later when her friend comes in, she says, Ruthie, over here. And like everybody in the restaurant's like looking at that, and she has no idea what's going on. Uh, 
which I love that kind of prank. But there was like shit like that. Like they pulled pranks on each other and like hung out in a way that was just really sweet. But I like the idea that you can still make friends at age 68 with somebody who becomes your bestie. I like that a lot. Isn't that great? Yeah. I've been searching high and low how to make friends after 35. Yeah. It's weird that that gets hard, right? That's bullshit. Yeah. One thing that I also had on my list that I don't think is going to make it, she had a real love for the little guy too. Her random acts of kindness throughout her life are pretty amazing. There's a lot of stories of her helping out a waiter at a you know some random restaurant while she's on tour. Her life is littered with that kind of stuff, which is sort of interesting for somebody who's described as caustic in their obituary. Yeah. So your number five, though, was essentially the friendship. Yeah, late in life friendship, like ability to make friends throughout life. Yeah. And so I, mine was kind of in that ability to make friends in that she, like Prince Charles. Um, yeah, I, saw that. I mean, I think it was a real friendship. Yeah. She was one of only four Americans, I think, invited to the Charles Camilla wedding. Yeah. She was genuinely friends with Nancy Reagan. Yes. And I don't know who all she was friends with exactly, but her contemporaries in the village in New York in the 60s spanned from Dylan to Simon and Garfunkel to Richard Pryor. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think this is something you and I have talked about, both on and off mic, about how something we would love to measure in our categories on this show is relational wealth. Yeah. How well you do with those closest to you, friendships, marriages, that sort of thing. And it's a hard thing to measure, but in as much as you can kind of glean it, it's gleanable here. There's a lot of evidence that she knew how to do friendship. Correct. Yeah. All right, should we go on to the next one? Yep. All right. Category three, Malkovich, Malkovich. This category is named after the movie, Being John Malkovich, where characters take a little tube into John Malkovich's brain and get to experience firsthand what's going on behind John Malkovich's eyes. Amit, if you could take a tube into Joan Rivers' brain at some point in life, just to see what it'd be like, is there a moment that's interesting to you? Yeah, I think it is the moment that Johnny Carson hung up on her. Yeah. So the backstory was Johnny Carson was essentially her mentor Mm -hmm. and close friend, and she got an opportunity to host a late-night show opposite him. When Fox got launched as a network, yeah. Basically to host a show that would compete with his— and he heard about it otherwise and was very pissed. She called him. She was just calling to let him know, to ask for his congratulations, to let her know that they're playing safe or whatever. I but, think she was trying to mend fences. But he hung up on her, and she was banned from The Tonight Show it really until, like, the Fallon years. That's right. But what I'm talking about is the moment you get hung up on by one of your closest friends and mentors— At the time that your trajectory is peaking, it's one of the highest highs and one of the lowest lows of her professional and personal life simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Carson was a kingmaker, right? He was one of the reasons that Joan Rivers' career existed, if not the reason. There were other funny women coming up in the 50s and 60s. And they didn't have the Carson blessing. And he bestowed that blessing on to her. Look at the dedication of the book. I know. It's, it's very sweet of you. Yeah. Can I read it? Sure. Says so to Edgar, your husband. Yeah, I have ma- to do that. Who made this book happen. <laughs> who made this book happen. And to Johnny Carson, who made it all happen. Yeah. Well, that's very sweet of you. That's nice. Yeah. Of course, I didn't make it all happen. Oh, yes, yeah. She had this incredible run throughout the 60s and 70s into the 80s. 
and did not inform him ahead of time that she was going to take this show that was going to compete with his time slot. So when that phone goes click, she's just sitting there, what, terrified? I don't know. I mean, I don't want to experience it, but I want to know what it's like to have the highest high and the lowest low at the same time. It's got to be terrible. Yeah. It's a great one, Ahmed. I got one I'm really excited about. Okay. All right. So she came up with, among others, Lenny Bruce, who, audience members don't know, Lenny Bruce was a very controversial comic in the early 60s who was a kind of speak truth to power type and some regard as like one of the most pioneering and important stand-up comics of all time. Actually, this is worth pointing out. Have you watched Marvelous Miss Maisel? Mrs. Maisel? Only a little bit. Based on Joan Rivers. Oh, really? Yeah, I know. I didn't know that either. That makes all the sense right now. They haven't made that explicit, and Melissa has actually called this out, like the showrunners, like, you need to give some credit here. But, yeah, loosely based, at least, on Joan Rivers. So, Lenny Bruce admires young Joan Rivers' comic before she's had her Carson breakthrough. And one night after she bombs, he slips her a note that says, you're right, they're wrong. And she loves this note, and she takes heart in it, and she carries it around in her bra, apparently. And it's like, she's a huge admirer of Lenny Bruce. And so that's not quite the moment. A few years later, sometime in the 1960s, she's having a conversation with George Carlin, and she tells him, Lenny Bruce gave me this note that said, you're right, they're wrong. And George Carlin said, oh, he gave me the same note. I want to know what went through her mind at that moment. Oh, fuck. (laughs) I mean, I think, like, it's funny, and you're still grateful, but you realize you're not quite as special as you thought you were. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That's that's why I almost never, like, copy and paste a joke. If I, like, think of something very funny and I'm going to text you, I won't copy and paste the same thing to somebody else. You won't copy the text over and just, like, stick it to another person? I try not to. Originality counts, I think, if it's something that... If it's something special that you're trying to reach. I don't know. I mean, you know, it's still at the, like, it is what she needed to hear at that point in her career. Yeah. But maybe George needed it, like, with the exact same level of desperation. And Lenny was the kingmaker who could, who mended two hearts. And that's it. Yeah. And they, like, maybe it's a beautiful moment, actually, when these are the only two times Lenny Bruce ever wrote the note. Yeah. But what you're saying is like what could go through your head is, oh, Lenny's just handing these out like Halloween candy. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Or it could be this beautiful moment of like Lenny had this thought twice in his life, these two great minds and comic geniuses have crossed. Uh, Yeah, anyway, I want to know what's going on in your mind at that moment. That's a good one. I thought you'd like that. Yeah. And so before we close out Malkovich, though, I have to say— I really want to know what it's like to be center square on Hollywood Squares. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I think I really did dream about that. Really? Of what that would be like to just get called and you're just so important because you complete the tic-tac-toe. Yeah, and she was a consistent, like, for almost three years, she was, like, the most common center square. Joni, you're watching balls go back and forth at speeds of up to 160 miles an hour. In what sport? <laughs> John. Jogging. <laughs> Is that your earliest association? With, when did Joan Rivers, like, enter into your consciousness? Then. Was it Hollywood Squares? Yeah. It was Spaceballs for me. Oh, okay. She's the voice of Dot. Dot, who kind of looked like her, right? Yeah. Yeah. The C-3PO female version. And and that was right around the time that her show got canceled, too. 
Yeah. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Shall we go on to category four? Yeah. All right. Marriages. How many? Also, how many kids? And is there anything public we know about these relationships? I thought we were going to call this category love and marriage. Can we call it love and marriage? Sure. Just for this episode, and we'll see if it sticks for the next one. Category four, love and marriage. How many marriages? Also, how many kids? And is there anything public about these relationships? Start us off. All right. Two marriages. First one, 1955, Joan was 22 at the time. This marriage lasted six months before it was annulled. Did you catch why that marriage ended? Yes. Uh, there was no love. It was obviously a mismatch. I don't think that there was any abuse. There was just like very clear to both parties this was not meant to be. She had somebody who she was hot for before who was like a poet who wasn't going anywhere. And I forget exactly what husband number one did, but it was something very boring and very stable and very encouraged by her parents, and it just was a no-go. Yeah, I think he was a store guy. But what what I read, whether there's truth to this or not, was that she got it annulled, and the reason was she did not that she stated is she did not realize that he did not want to have children. That actually may be true. Yeah, I do think I saw that somewhere. I'd I'd need to look it up again, but that sounds right. So, how does anybody get married without that conversation? In 1955, I didn't know men talk to women before they got married to them. Uh, that's a horrible thing to say. <laughs> well, in 1955, I mean, no, 1955, I'm not sure it's that's... not. But maybe you're maybe it's also just so implied in 1955. Yeah, they're going to follow along this path. If that is true, it is absolutely uh, unforgivable, certainly by today's standards, to not have that conversation ahead of time. That's not something you discover after you say "I do." Yeah, but I'm just saying, why wouldn't they have had the conversation? Is it just because it was so implicit in the fact that you get married in the 50s? That'd that's be what my you're guess. Do? That'd be my guess. Yeah. Now, do people always have that conversation? I was it very clear? That's a good question. When you, how long have you been married now? <sighs> fifteen years. Okay. I'm I've been, I've at, been with Allison's twenty-two years. Okay. So fifteen years. There was there were seven to eight years between 
meeting and marriage. Yeah. Okay. Were you all clear on your desire to have children? Oh, no. What we were clear on is that we would be able to talk about it. I yes. wasn't totally there yet. Allison wasn't totally there yet. But it was clear that we were going to be able to arrive at a shared understanding of what was best for us. It was not like we're, you know, you want to have kids and you don't. I mean, no, neither of us were stuck in our ways. Yeah. That's my recollection of it. She probably was clearer on the fact that she would want to have kids at some point than I understood at the time. And maybe there was a subconscious part of me that thought I'll probably get talked into this when the time is right. Yeah. But I think that's the difference between 1955 and 17 years ago or 15 years ago. Yeah. Which was actually roughly 2005. Yeah. In a 50-year period, I don't think you could have had that ambiguity and passed go. I think you guys had to be completely aligned. Yes, but there are other things you're looking at. Correct. But if you're making a public statement about the reason that your marriage is annulled. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what to make of this exactly. I think we make of it that they wouldn't have even gotten through the marriage part if this were if a few decades know that later. After six months, they shouldn't have been married in the first fucking place. Isn't that clear? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's very... What was the, like, short-term Kardashian wedding? Uh, uh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> there was, like, the 10-day wedding or something. I don't know about this. This was, it was I'm, a while ago. I'm, I'm pretty naive when it comes to the uh, Kardashians, I'm afraid. Oh, really? Michael, you're too good for celebrity gossip, are you? <laughs> That's a mean thing to say. No, it was meta. <laughs> being I, get meta. I get it. I get it. No, I just, the Kardashians had never been particularly interesting to me until I saw the OJ documentary and realized that their father was right there with OJ. All right, should we get on to husband number two? Yes. Okay. Because this is the more important one. Mm-hmm. In terms of her story. So, Edgar, husband number two, married in 1965. Joan was 32. He committed suicide in 1987. When he killed himself, she was 54. His suicide is, as the story goes, tied into her late night show being canceled. So, she quote unquote burns Johnny Carson, or at least that's how Johnny Carson felt about it. She goes to work with Fox. Her husband, Edgar, had been very involved in Joan's career. He was a producer on that show. It was sort of his first real producer opportunity. And it turns into a shit show. At some point, Fox says, Joan, you've got to get rid of him. It's either him or you lose this altogether. And she says, well, I've got to stick by my husband. Gets canceled. Three months later, he kills himself. When I read the story initially, I'm like, it can't be that simple. This man didn't necessarily kill himself because of Joan's career. But when you get into the story, it was certainly more than a confounding factor. Obviously, there was depression leading up to it, but it really does sound like he was devastated by what had happened with her career. And at that point, leaves her essentially bankrupt in her careers in the toilet. She herself, for what it's worth, also had moments of suicide ideation. Yeah, which she talks about very publicly. Yeah. The the other things that I learned from this marriage— it didn't sound very good. Yeah. Otherwise, like it I sounds it was, like there it was, was, it was transactional and business. Yeah, and there were public affairs, and yeah. or I don't know how public the affairs were, but there were affairs that were known. She was playing around. Maybe he was also. Yeah. But apparently, she wasn't very silent about it in her later years. Um, I've heard that some of the shit she said, though, may be just like her trying to draw attention. It's not necessarily clear if that 
those extramarital affairs are real or not? Yeah, that is a sort of a public criticism that that came a lot, yeah. came up a lot in my research. Yeah. But anyway, so that's something to say. Like, there's one way to view a marriage of 22 years ending in such an ugly, catastrophic way, but it also wasn't like it didn't sound like it was all roses. Yeah, she's been pretty public about that too. Yeah. I mean, I, they married four days after they met, and they met on the Johnny Carson set. Okay. And. It was a business partnership in a lot of ways, and the business was Joan Rivers. Yes. And as time went on, they were both pretty clear about that. I mean, she had nice things to say about him. She said he was funny and brilliant, but it doesn't sound like it was um, like a lot of fun. Yeah, but like you said, I mean, there there was commitment there, right? She said, you are not firing my husband. I'm sticking with my husband. Joan Rivers has some weird traditional values throughout her career. Yeah. I mean, I think that, and I think this is one of them. I think that once you're married, whatever you feel, like you stick in this thing and you make it work. I actually think that has something to do with why she got Carson's blessing. I think that for Johnny Carson, she was just risky enough as a comedian, but also conventional enough to fit into uh, a mold that he would be willing to bequeath, empower, bestow, whatever you want to call it, right? I think she was very shaped by the culture of the 1950s and 60s and was drawing outside the lines in just the right places for somebody like Johnny Carson to say, America, you should love this woman the same way I do. Yeah. That got a little off topic with the marriage thing, but I think that the way her marriage plays out, and that, I don't know if this is relevant to the fact that she never got married again, but like her priority was always career. I mean, I think family's in there. We already talked about Melissa, but I think that she had a work ethic like no other and was all about having her calendar filled, like it said over and over again. Yeah. I did come across one account. I don't know if this is true. I kind of hope it's not, that she had asked him for a separation like days before he committed suicide. In the 2010 interview I heard with her, she said, I'm still pissed off at him because I think that's how this works. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And immediately after this, because he was in Philadelphia, and this is when Melissa was in college at Penn, and the last thing, I saw Melissa say that the last thing he said to her was, I'll see you tomorrow, which never happened. Yeah. And she sounds, to this day, deal with abandonment issues, which makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. So really sad and really tragic and like leads to one of the lowest of low points in Joan Rivers' life. I think in anybody's life, to be on the other side of a suicide, whether it's as a partner, spouse, parent, friend, just has to be horrifying and terrible. And confusing. And like, cause like, because like, how do you deal with that anger? You're grief stricken and you're angry. And you're pissed off. Yeah. I think it's a horrible thing for anyone to have to deal with. Yeah. Okay. So before we close out this category, I want to throw in a personal tidbit and I'm going to just expand the category to me, love dating and marriage. Okay. So I worked for Match.com in the mid 2000s. You know this, right? Uh, I knew this, but I haven't heard you talk about it much. So I worked there. I worked in marketing. There was a instance in 2006 that Joan Rivers had like made a statement that she is on Match.com. And she made it as a joke, I think. Like then she said that she went on there and nobody even like responded to her. It was like part of her act. Yeah. But I think it was something that we like tried to capitalize on as a company just because it was like the first time a celebrity is actually like admitting to using it. 
online dating then was very different than it is now. Yeah, in it hadn't terms been of, normalized. Yeah. yeah. So she was a key figure in like in that little part of my career, just that excitement of her even like making that statement, whether it was even a joke or true or not. That's almost a good Malkovich moment when she fills out her profile and hits the publish button on Match.com. Yes. That's great. Anyway, let's go on. Category five, net worth. What did you find? 150 very big ones. That's what I saw. 150 million. Yeah. It's enormous. That's enormous. That's I, enormous. I was so intrigued by it because I tried to like look for the source of it. QVC. QVC. That's what they that's what they attributed a lot of it to. They said like over fifty million dollars in proceeds or uh, royalties from QVC. Huge amount comes from QVC. Cause so she's bankrupt in nineteen eighty seven or eighty eight when her show gets canceled on Fox. And struggles to find work for about a year and a half. One of the first things she does come to is QVC. Because she makes products that she lends her name to? That's correct. They're like dresses or something? Jewelry is a lot of it, I think. I've never watched QVC. It's sort of like Home Shopping Network. Yeah, so that's my question. Do you even know anybody who's ever bought anything off QVC? Not to my knowledge. But then why would I? I mean, if I'm not buying it, I'm not looking over, you know, the shoulder of my... No, I don't know. Yeah, I just I didn't realize it was capable of... Just amassing these fortunes. But I mean, the other thing, it, like, so, okay, I think that QVC goes a long way. I think she also, she wrote 12 books. She was working all the fucking time. That's the other thing, working all the time. All the time. So, I don't know. So much so that you could make a case that there's a workaholic thing. Yeah. Like, she was the Energizer Bunny. She did not stop. She would never stop. Um, and did not stop till her dying day. In the year she died, she did 60 performances or something. Correct, but never like a leading role in a blockbuster film or anything like that. No, but she wanted that. She was actually, her aspirations were always for acting and for the stage. Yeah. And she tried. She did do a play in the late 90s that was based on Lenny Bruce's mother, a woman named Sally Marr. She actually got a lot of great reviews on Broadway, but one of the things I saw was that as she got uh, more and more plastic surgeries, she became uncastable. Uh, that's what some of the Hollywood agents said, anyway. Yeah. It sort of makes sense. Who was the woman that played Lucille in Arrested Development? Uh, Jessica Walters. Okay. I feel like Joan could have been cast for that. Yeah. That's a really good call. Okay, so $150 million. That's a truckload of money. <laughs> it's a truckload of money. Um, so what, because she was such a hard worker nonstop for because five plus decades? Because it was clear that was the goal. There was nothing humble about it. Like, she was after a fortune. Yeah, and it seems like she was very charitable, too. Very involved in yes. AIDS causes, depression, suicidality causes. AIDS um, in particular, because her early audience, especially in the post-Carson years, she, well, actually, I think it was actually true throughout her career, gay audiences really felt a kinship towards Joan Rivers. Because so she, she has this, like, diva-ish Totally, yeah. yeah. And so early on, aware of the severity of the AIDS epidemic and was, like, a super early activist. Yeah. So, yes, charitable woman. Yeah, and this is the note I wanted to make earlier, is that her estate, a lot of it went to her daughter and grandson, but she also made sure that all of her staff were, like, well taken care of into their lives. Yeah, everybody who was part of the Joan Rivers empire— that I saw just had uh, unbelievably nice things. I mean, I think some of the agents got burned here and there. But in terms of the, like, support staff, she was incredibly generous and, like, made time for autographs and made time for the small person. Yeah. So the spending of the wealth, if that is true, I like that. I struggle with uh, a fantasy of being rich because I don't know what exactly I would do with it. Like, $150 million's a lot. Yeah. I would fly first class. Right. But— I would have many houses. 
I don't know if I would do that. I'm a renter. I would rent many. Many places. rental places. <laughs> yeah, sure. But the, the point is, like, what seems to be, to me, like, the most rewarding would be, like, giving somebody a $100,000 tip yeah. for good service. Yeah. You know, just at, at random intervals. I mean, I, I do think that this is somebody for whom there was an ever-present, unfulfilled hole in her soul, you know? And I don't think the accumulation of money did it. I do think the seeking of laughter through validation was part of what that was all about. You know, she could tell herself along the way, I am setting up Melissa and her grandson Cooper for good things here. I don't know. I it, It's funny. There are other people, dead celebrities, who might have had $150 million as a net worth, who I would have had more conflict around. Here, I felt like it was okay. Given the accomplishments of her life, given the work ethic, given the variety of things she was doing from QVC to hosting late night to Celebrity Apprentice to being a stand-up you know, road comic to the very end, to voice work, all of it. You're working that much and you really love what you do. I, I felt okay about this number. Yeah. And she won Celebrity Apprentice. She did win On Celebrity Apprentice. Did you watch it? No. Me neither. Yeah. Okay. Category six, Simpsons, SNL, or Hollywood Walk of Fame. This is a measure of how famous somebody was. We include both impersonations as well as guest appearances on both Simpsons and SNL. I've got this all organized here. Do you want me to take it? Yeah, and I'll, I'll jump in with some commentary because for once I actually have like fairly comprehensive notes on this one. Oh, good. Okay, well, so I'm um, starting with SNL. Uh, Sarah Silverman did an impression of her in 2014 after she died. There are five different people who did an impersonation who I found on the SNL wiki of Joan Rivers. They include Sarah Silverman, Anna Gasteyer, uh, Michaela Watkins, Terry Sweeney, who was the first gay man on SNL, and David Spade. Oh, wow. Yeah. A lot of people impersonated Joan Rivers, and she hosted in 1983. And she hosted. I think we've never had a host before. Is that right? I don't think we've talked about anybody that's hosted before. I was an ugly kid, and thank God I grew up in New York. Because California, they would have put me in a bag and thrown me in the Pacific. Because I mean, you are looking at the ugliest child ever born in Larchmont, New York. I want you to know. I, oh, please. Uh, I, I mean, the doctor looked at me and said, she's not done yet, and shoved me back in. It was just... For Simpsons, I found a 2011 episode called Ten Cent Solution, where she does the voice of herself. She's on it. She's the guest. But it's not her, right? No, it is her. Is that the same one that she's... So maybe it was another one. She was like Krusty's agent, but not as Joan Rivers. Oh, I'm not clear on that. Do you know what the name of that episode is? I didn't write it down. But either way, she was on The Simpsons possibly multiple times that year. And I think she did a few follow-ups as well. All right, and then she does have a Hollywood star. Okay. 1989, so she is clearly famous. Did you watch the 2010 documentary? I think I asked you this. You did ask me. No, I didn't. It's good. I remember watching it when it came out, and it's definitely one of those documentaries that whatever narrative you had of this person, it resets it. It it changed her legacy and her story. I mean, I really do think that the way we think of her now, by and large, was shaped by that documentary. I think that there's a little bit of uh, change in narrative who she was post-Me Too because of some of the jokes that were really like fat-shaming and punching down, that term gets used. So I don't know. I think her legacy is still being shaped a little bit. And I read somewhere, one of the remembrance pieces had this like didn't realize how important and 
present she was until she died. It's almost like she becomes an A-list celebrity at death, but was sort of like playing the role of B-lister for 50 years leading up to that. Yeah. All right, last category in the easily knowable information, fan favorite, over under, what is the life expectancy for the year they were born, and did they beat the house odds? 1933, for women, life expectancy is 65 years. Joan Rivers died age 81, so she beat it by 16 years. That's a healthy beat. That's a healthy beat. She, Actually, 65, born in 1933. That's she, a high number. I didn't think. Yeah, that was my take, too. It's 61.7 or something for men, 65.1 for women. So, beat it. Didn't grand slam it. Do you know much about the nature of her death? It was an operation or something that she didn't recover from. She went in to get her vocal cords checked out, and there was anesthesia, and the doctor's didn't monitor it. There's actually a malpractice suit that got settled. If you read the play-by-play, like, the doctors really screwed up. Like, that was was an appropriate malpractice suit. So she went to sleep and never woke up and had no idea that, you know. I gotta say, in a way, part of me felt like this isn't a bad death. To not know it's coming, to not suffer, she made it very clear, if I can't do stand-up comedy, pull the plug... She was obviously afraid of age if you look at the plastic surgeries and hear how she talks about age. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's sad, sudden, tragic, awful, 81. I don't know. It's painless, but she didn't get to say goodbye to the ones that she probably wanted That's to say That's right, to. but we can't plan for death. And I think, you know, I, I could think of worse deaths. I can too. Yeah. But it's certainly better than a sudden, gory death. Right. Right. And... I mean, you know, she was in a coma for a few days and then just never came out of it. Yeah. And, I mean, and like the whole point of this category, she lived a respectably long life. 16 years past the over-under. Yeah. In terms of desirability, kind of like it in a weird way. And that, like, she didn't fade into... Yeah. I mean, the thing that she was most afraid of was age, I think. She wouldn't have the energy to do stand-up, that she wouldn't be relevant to pop culture anymore. Yeah. She got to ride the ride to a desired destination, even if it didn't—you can't plan for how it's all going to end, of course, but, like, I don't know. I wonder if if she was here today, yeah, how she would feel about it. My guess is, like, man, not bad, given all the shit I was worried about. Yeah, I mean, somebody very spiritual may have called it a divine intervention, right? She wanted to go get her vocal cords fixed. So she didn't descend into oblivion. Her raspy, you know, white rabbit. But I'm devil just saying, ra- devil rabbit, devil rabbit. Well, I am. I mean, the fact that it was on her vocal cords and her voice was everything. I mean, there is some. I'm not saying spiritual intervention, but I think if you wanted to fill in the blanks, there one could make that case. One could make that case. Yeah. Hey, folks. Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report, and we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S.
Michael, I've got a question for you. Yeah. Uh, if you could take today's dead celebrity to any retail store, what would it be? Ooh. I think I would take him to Half Price Books, Ahmed. Half Price Books? Half Price absolutely. Explain yourself, sir. Well, I, th- I love shopping for books with people. Shopping for books is always stimulates interesting conversation, right? You browse the different aisles and you see you know different topics come to mind. Have you ever read this author? Have you ever read that book? It's just a good place to talk and wander and discover. So yeah, absolutely. Half Price Books is an awesome venue to connect with people, to discover books that you've long forgotten about or that you haven't read and it's all a great price and you know what half price books is celebrating 50 years of buying and selling books movies and music there are over 120 stores and you can find out more at hpb.com all right shall we get to the inner life questions yep First of these categories, man in the mirror. What did they think of their own reflection? Yeah, so this was a tough one. You thought um, so? I didn't think so. I think it's a pretty clear and obvious no. Because of all the plastic surgery. Yeah. And the, yeah. Because of how she talked about her own face and her own body and her own perception of herself throughout her career. I think that she did feel better about how she looked after every plastic surgery. Yeah. But she had to go to some pretty extreme intervention, and at some point, it becomes a punchline. Yeah, so I, I agree with you outright. Why I was going to say it was a tough one is because she she was very pretty. You know? Yeah. She was a symbol. She was attractive, and so... She didn't not, think so, though. Yeah, but not knowing anything about her story, somebody faced with this category question of, did they like their own reflection? You'd be like, well, of course he did. She was beautiful. But clearly not. It's interesting you describe her as pretty. She wouldn't have described herself that way. Uh, Yeah, I thought she was very pretty. Definitely not the ugly duckling she portrays herself to be. Yeah, and female comedians, you know, it's hard for that. Like, even Amy Schumer kind of had that thing. You know, she she portrayed herself as this kind of ugly duckling in a lot of her early stuff, but so many people thought she was, like, really good looking. Yeah, absolutely. And I think some of the other female comedians today, too. Sarah Silverman, certainly. She doesn't really try to play the ugly duckling thing, but certainly just a very good-looking person as yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, he, I, Tina Fey had put in that category, too. Like, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Downplays, like, how attractive she is, yeah. in a way. Yeah. But those people, I would say, do like their reflection. Some of those that we mentioned. Yeah. Or at peace with it. And who knows? I mean, I do think that she at least tried to tell herself she made peace with her reflection with each plastic surgery, which she did 70-plus times, I think. I mean, it was it was a regular. Yeah, but we're just talking about in totality. That's right. All okay, right. so we're, we're, we're in agreed no. I think so. Okay, so next category, outgoing message. You have reached the voicemail box of... Joan Rivers here, and don't feel bad if you recognize the name without the face. got this one two weeks ago. <laughs> How do we think she felt about her own voice when she heard it on an answering machine or an outgoing voicemail? I kind of think she liked her voice. I think she liked it, too. The The raspiness of it. It was very unique and distinguishable. The great New York accent. I mean, it's got that, you know, punctuated, I'm going to use it. Yeah. You know, and it's like the instrument for her on stage. Yeah. She's physically funny in a sense, but, like, most of it is coming out of that voice. I agree. Is there any case you could make for her not liking her outgoing message? If part of why she is so critical of her own self-reflection, which she is very public about and very obviously is, is that she doesn't think it's sexy. Her voice is not sexy either, I think. So 
maybe that's the case why she might not like the sound of her own voice. But I don't even know she would agree with that. I mean, I'm saying it's not sexy only because it's it's not like voluptuous. But some people would could. Yeah, I can't. I mean, I think it's kind of. I like it. I I I find humor attractive too. Yeah. So I am more attracted to her because of how fucking funny she is at yeah. times. But what you're saying, you're saying if there is a case against her liking her own voice, it's that the insecurity was around sex for all of her. Correct. Yeah. That's the that's the case I would make for it. And I would still say she liked the sound of her own. Voice. I think she did too, because if there was insecurity there in the physical appearance or all the other things that she was self-pitting on in a joking way, you know, her voice was like her vehicle out. It was like the life raft in which she could still float above. That's right. Okay. Next category, regrets, public or private. What we really want to know is what, if anything, kept this person awake at night. On the public front, we've already talked about the Johnny Carson fiasco. I think she even said she would have handled that differently. She wished she had been the one to tell Johnny and ask for a blessing. It really sounds like the godfather. It it totally is, dude. And by the way, Johnny Carson, a very problematic figure. Have you looked into much of this? Like philander and a complete prick behind the scenes. Not a good dude, or at least not by today's 2022 standards. I got one other. Okay. In that 2010 documentary I mentioned, Joan Rivers' piece of work, she said, my life is an actress's life. I play a comedian. She said that while tearing up. I think she always wanted to be an actress. I think that she found validation and fortune in comedy, and in stand-up comedy in particular. I wonder very much if she, and this is a little bit of private regret perhaps, if if she wouldn't have maybe been, had taken a different strategy to having an acting career in retrospect rather than keep going back to stand-up. Yeah, because what she's saying is this whole like caustic piercing runway humorist is an act. Is a character I play. Yeah. But, I mean, doesn't that make you think of the Shakespeare quote about, like, all the world's a stage and we're just actors? I mean, everybody is playing the part of themselves. But how deeply you are doing it, how far this character that you're portraying strays from that, that can be difficult. Do you think that's an inevitable part of a public, famous, or at least performative life? For a comic, or you're saying anybody? Well, I don't know. I think it's kind of true for politicians. It's less true for sports figures and entrepreneurs, but certainly politicians and actors, actresses, anybody in kind of the entertainment industry, and let's just call politics part of the entertainment industry, I think that your narrative is part of what you're trading on so that like you're a successful actor or actress who can slot into a variety of roles, or you're a successful individual who can represent a populace. That's what that Shakespeare quote means to me, that we're all playing the role. We're trying to write our stories. We're trying to, like, control our own narratives. Yeah. So I I don't think it's inevitable. I think you have to work pretty hard for it not to be. Yeah. Because I can think of a lot of examples that, that, you know, you see— Who comes to mind? Somebody, uh, Clooney. Do you think he's living an authentic life? I buy it. Yeah, right, right. In one of the interviews I listened to Joan Rivers, she was— Asked, like, do you prefer life on the stage or, like, real life? I wasn't, I'm, I'm bungling the question, but it was like, what she was saying is that I am at my most best self on stage. 
Yeah. Like that's where I get the validation that I, I'm seeking everywhere else. And like that experience when it's good is perfect. And there's nothing that compares. Because this is the thing, like this gal is full of contradictions. And to the extent that she's playing a character part, I don't know, maybe that's just how she felt in that moment in front of the camera, in front of the documentary, whether she feels that as a deep regret. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I didn't have anything else in the regrets category. Should we go on? Yes, let's go on. All right. Good dreams, bad dreams. This is a question about, is there a look in the eye? Something that hints at pain, trauma, inner peace. Is it there or not? I think bad's an easy answer, given what all we've said about the uh, self-image issues and the playing of the character. And However, she also seemed really resilient. Oh, yes. And she talked very publicly as well about, like, how close she herself got to suicide. Yeah. You know, so I think there's so much resilience. There's a lot of Mm self-knowledge. There's some clarity that I, in the end, said good dreams. Wow. That's a strong case for good dreams. I don't think I'm going to change my answer. I think I'm resolved with bad dreams, but I like your case for it. Yeah, you know, they say, so she she talks about this situation that she almost killed herself, like with a gun in her lap. And her yeah, it was after Edgar jumped. died. and Yeah, Yeah. so I don't want to get much into that, but I've heard a lot and read a lot that people who fail suicide generally don't try again. Yeah. They do wake up with some sort of clarity or sometimes a renewed commitment into life. And I'm not saying that that's what happened to her. But that whole idea and the fact that she lived through that could speak to that character strength. Uh, I I agree, and I certainly agree wholeheartedly that resilience is a defining and a very desirable character trait. Mm -hmm. So whatever the answer to this question is, we're in more agreement, even if we have two different answers. Yeah, great. All right. Second to last category, cocktail, coffee, or cannabis? It's a question about which one would we most want to do with this person? Smoke a joint, have a drink, or uh, pound some coffee? This may be about trying to access their inner life, or it may be a good hang. Where did you come up? I want the good hang. Cocktail. I want her to make me laugh. I want her to make fun of me. I just want to be entertained. Pretty good. Uh, I want all three. I would love to, I'd love to hang out with John Rivers and smoke a joint or hang out with John Rivers and have some coffee. I also went cocktail. I want truth serum, though. I want like to I want to laugh with her, but then I want like the walls to come down and know a little bit what she really thinks. One of the things I think I'm most curious about is the unapologetic, caustic humor. I mean, she went after Elizabeth Taylor with fat jokes for years and years and years. And she's now blasted for that, like for making women feel bad about being fat or being overweight. And this is one of the great contradictions I've heard of that. I mean, she sort of balked at being called a feminist and was in some ways also a pioneer, right? And that she also, like, called out women for not adhering to a certain standard of objectivity and how they looked, especially when they were Elizabeth Taylor and had the power to do so. I have a hard time signing off on that. But she would not apologize for a joke. She was adamant that these are jokes and I can make jokes and and comedy is sacred and free speech is sacred. And this space on this stage where my goal is to make you laugh, like, you cannot tell me what I cannot say, no matter what. I admire that. I just, I would like to get her drunk enough to know if there's a ding in the armor. Yeah. You know, 
All right. We've arrived. The Vanderbeek. Named after James Vanderbeek, who said in Varsity Blues, I don't want your life. Ahmet, do you want Joan Rivers' life? This was a really hard one. I do not know. Even now, I thought I'd have a lean. I am right on the fence here. Yeah, I'm feeling that too. So let me talk it out. I do have an answer now. You do? I, I do have an answer, but I want to talk it out. Okay. The things I'm most terrified of would being on the other side of that suicide. Yeah. That alone in a lot of lives could be enough for me to to say I don't want it. My soul probably couldn't handle it, but we're talking about her life, her soul. So that much is problematic for me. Yeah. However, I think some of the words that we used at the very beginning, commitment, tenure, pioneer, like this is a legacy life. Yeah. Like without her, you don't have... You know, we talk about Sarah Silverman and all, but you probably don't even go way up the chain to Whoopi Goldberg and Rosie O'Donnell. Yeah. So she was a change maker. Someone else might have stepped in eventually and did the same thing. But she was one of those change the world type of people. That's also not a reason that I want her life. So despite what you said about she's an actress playing a comedian. Yeah. Even if that's true. You see her on the runway. You see her in Hollywood Squares. She looked like she was having fun, like up until the end. You know, when I made that Match.com reference, she was like 76 years old, like still making jokes about this. And you made this point of like, she made a new best friend at 68. I love that. I love the not fading away and most importantly, the having fun through it all because uh, there will be things that blindside everyone. And can ruin a life. But the still having fun with it, right up until the end, that's a reason for me to say, yes, I want your life. I don't think I could capture my thinking any better. I think that pain is inevitable. I think that to live through a suicide or the suicide of a spouse, of course I don't want that event. But you don't get through life without pain somewhere. I don't know how to weigh that against the other things. I wish I understood better what put her on this course where she needed the validation through humor and through the stage. I wish I understood the depth of that, like, sort of ur pain, wherever that came from. I don't know if that would make me change my answer either, though, because there are just too many qualities here that I want. I want to be resilient. I want to be fearless. I want to be laughing. I want to be seeking truth through humor. I want to be a leader and a pioneer. I want to have that kind of work ethic. I want to be able to practice random acts of kindness. I want to be close with my children, despite some clear and obvious pain and some real big setbacks. I want this life. So I think we're both yes. Two yeses on the Vanderbeek. Wow. I did not expect to arrive here, I got to say. I don't think I did either. Really? Yeah. That's our pact, right? Yeah. We just take into account each other's perspectives and what we learned during the course of the recording and then take on the Vanderbeek. Interesting to me how important the friendship thing really weighed here, too. It's not in the biography I read of her, this friend that she develops in her late 60s. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost, it's not a chapter that's highlighted in the same way, but it, there was something about it that's like, I don't know, man. I want to be able to make friends for the rest of my life. That, more than anything else, is 
you know, one of the biggest pieces of desirability. And I don't think you can do that unless you have attractive qualities like resilience and fearlessness. Yeah. You know, that's the kind of thing that invites friendship. Yeah, that's what I took away here. I guess we're at the pearly gates. Joan's chariot has pulled up. Joan's chariot has pulled up. St. Peter is waiting. And you have an opportunity to make a pitch for why you should be let into the positive afterlife, whatever that afterlife may be. You want to do this? You want me to do this? You can do it. I think this is pretty simple. I understand that I pissed a lot of people off, but I was after humor in everything I did. Peter, I figured out a way to take my pain and laugh at it and show others what an incredibly comforting, powerful strategy that is for dealing with the inevitable pains of life. And I stayed committed to that for all my years. And I stayed committed to friends and family and strangers and everything I did. You might not always agreed with it. I might have made you mad, but I tried to be as welcoming as I possibly could, given that I think that this is the only way to get through life. For that alone, please, let me in. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Famous and Gravy. If you're enjoying our show, please go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. It really does help new listeners to find the show. We would love to see you on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Famous and Gravy. We've got lots of fun stuff there on our Twitter feed. Also, please sign up for our newsletter on our website, FamousAndGravy.com. Famous and Gravy was created by Amit Kapoor and me, Michael Osborne. This episode was produced by Jacob Weiss. Original theme music by Kevin Strang. And thanks also to our sponsor, Half Price Books. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.